0: Does God have a faith? Does he have a body or even a name? If he does does he know that I'm alive?
1: Welcome to another episode of a People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with John Thetominal. John is associate professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary. He is also the author of Circling the Elephant, a comparative theology of religious diversity. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Forrest Clay. Forrest Clay is a solo project from Ohio. You can get connected with John and Forrest Clay and their work in the links in the episode description. God, kill his
0: kid. Did he have
1: to have blood before? Today we have John Thetominal with us, and John, you do incredible work in the world, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. So who is John Thetominal to John Thetominal?
2: Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, biographically, I am a product of immigration Mm. to the U.S. as a a child. And uh, I I think that that goes a long way towards Mm. explaining um, a great many of my interests, including in uh, trying to understand Indian religious traditions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a way of reconnecting to the land of my birth, Mm -hmm. albeit in a very, you know, intellectually (laughs) mediated way. So I I would say that's significant. I would also say that I I fundamentally see myself as a Christian theologian but one who is deeply shaped by my engagement with the reading of Hindu texts and Buddhist practices of meditation. Mm. So yeah, I, I don't call myself a multiple religious belonger because b- belonging I think is, this is contested. De- it depends on being recognized by by more than one community mm-hmm. as a belonger, but I, I do engage in what uh, some call multiple religious participation.
1: And we'll dig into that a little bit more. You're also a wearer of great turtlenecks. You, you're rocking <laughs> that thing right now.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's surreal. But it was 50 degrees here in Victoria, British Columbia, which is where I am at present. Wow. And, and I don't think I've ever worn a turtleneck in, in June. <laughs> but it's basically turtleneck weather. And uh, I'm not complaining. I'd rather it be 50 than 90. That makes uh, sense.
1: Yeah, well, it's 90 <laughs> here in Minnesota right now, and it is scalding. So yeah. I, I wouldn't mind a little turtleneck weather as well. So So I'm kind of curious a little bit more before we dive into some questions around uh, your newest book, Circling the Elephant. Uh, But you mentioned that you're a child of immigration. And so you moved here from the United States when you were a child. And I'm just kind of curious with your story. At what point did you kind of Get the sense of I want to do theology professionally. I'm sure, maybe even early on in your young life, that you were interested in theology. But at what point were you like, "This is something I want to make money from"?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't think anyone makes money. That's true from from theology. We 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 hope to make enough to stay off the streets. But it's a good question. It's not a natural career choice, um, and even less so for an immigrant. There is a strong pressure, typically, whether stated or unstated, in in immigrant families to do something practical, Mm. to establish one's way in uh, the new community. And and in Indian communities, that typically means that you choose uh, medicine or engineering. And I, I, I joke that that's pretty much what I did. I sort of, yeah, I'm brown, well, I should do, I have no interest in medicine, I'll do engineering. So mm. before I arrived at my college, I, even before I got there, I declared a double major in computer science and electrical engineering, which um, bemuses all who know me because they <laughs> uh, know that I have trouble assembling routine cardboard boxes. But, you know, because of this sort of immigrant orientation, that's what I thought I had to do. But when I got to Washington University in St. Louis, where I did my undergrad work, I uh, made the happy mistake, uh, Felix Kulpa, I guess, uh, of taking a course called Historical and Theological Introduction to the New Testament in my first semester. Mm. Uh, Somebody let me into a 300 level class that I probably shouldn't have been in. But I did, great. And my professor said, "Uh, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm an engineer. And he said, why why in the world are you doing that? And I said, I'm trying to be practical. And and my professor then said, I have severe reservations about your definition of the word practical. In other words, he was telling me that I clearly seem to have a gift for, for theological and uh, and uh, thinking with biblical texts, and I thought, well, okay, I'm bored out of my skull in my engineering classes. I'm doing all right, <laughs> nothing to write home about, but, but I was really flourishing uh, in theological studies. And that, that's what did it, you know, a sense of being recognized that, that I do have a certain kind of fil- uh, facility with theological thinking. So, I mean, if no one had said that, if I hadn't tripped into that class, it's hard to see. The other thing is that that I had always been a young person who asked questions. I mean, I remember being, for weird reasons that I still don't know fully, obsessed with questions about free will. And mm-hmm. apparently in high school, I was heading over to the local Jesuit library and reading books and trying to figure out what Augustine had to say on free will and uh, confusing local pastors by asking really, apparently, probing questions about Kant. I, I didn't, You know, and, and uh, I didn't even know I was reading Kant until one of my minister friends, pastor friend, said uh, about four years ago, John, I had no idea what to do with you because you're asking these questions. So... <laughs> I think there was always a kind of interest in theological questions even before I got to college. And then I fell into it and found myself really uh, taking great joy in it.
1: Mm. That's so interesting. It's a fascinating journey. Yeah, it is. So let's chat a little bit more about your book. It's called Circling the Elephant, A Comparative Theology of Religious Diversity. And I think the questions around religious diversity and religious pluralism in our day and age are some of the most important questions for us to be considering. And so I I think that work is just absolutely incredible. So as you've been talking about with your own theological journey, you're no stranger to learning theology. You're a professional theologian and you stumbled into it because you were so interested in theology even at a young age. So what did you learn specifically theologically as you were writing Circling the Elephant that maybe you didn't know before theologically?
2: That's a great way of phrasing the question. What did I actually learn by writing the book? Well, really a, a very great deal, <laughs> I would say, because the book explores at least three or, three or four different academic fields feels Uh, and it was very nervous making to write a book like that because the book addresses what is called theology of religions i call it theology of religious diversity it also takes up comparative theology and before it gets to comparative theology it also does some theory of religion and it ends up with a a constructive theology of uh, Mm -hmm. the trinity so there are sort of four major <laughs> areas where you know most people live their professional lives writing in one of those four. And maybe two of the four. Right. But but not likely all four. So there is a kind of nervousness about writing a book like this uh because you're like surely someone who's actually a full-fledged expert on one of these things will say that I've missed the mark. But nonetheless You know, one of the things I learned was that if you're going to think about religious diversity, you really do need to keep learning across a number of fields. You can't. Interdisciplinarity is not a nice option. Mm. It's essential. So, for example, there, there's this entire literature I survey. I don't think I make many major contributions to it, but. Uh, on the the notion of religion as an invented category. That's not been a part of theological thinking in either constructive theology or comparative theology. The idea that there exists something called uh, religion or the world religions, and there are six or seven of the latter, and they're all instances of a basic type of some generic thing called religion. Mm. These are all relatively new ideas in the history of thought. And they have a particular history. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that history, uh, you, you naively uh, end up falling into habits of thought that need really to be interrogated. So, uh, I mean, that's the kind of, that's one example of, a, of, of something I uh, really did enjoy learning a great deal about.
1: So the book is centered around an ancient Indian allegory, including it's in the title. Can you talk about what this allegory is and how it relates to the book?
2: Yeah. The allegory uh, is found in ancient Buddhist sources first. It's commonly then used in in Jain thought and uh, then enters Hindu traditions. And Mm. in the 20th century, It's very prominently used in Hindu thought. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa uses it uh, uh, centrally in in his thinking. The allegory is that usually a standard way of telling the story has a king bringing a, a number of blind persons and blind men, according to the narrative, places them before an elephant, and a squabble emerges as each blind person tries to give an account of what that blind person is encountering. So one person, you know, presses up against the side of the elephant and says it's a wall. Uh, Another person happens to grab a leg and says, this is a tree trunk. Uh, Another grabs the tail and says, this is clearly a a, a rope and so forth. Uh, And of course, each is right about what they experience, mm-hmm. even if they bring the wrong sort of verbal token. I mean, it's like an al- a like a wall. It's not a wall, but they're right. But when they say that the other fellow is wrong, things go badly awry. In Indian circles and in theological circles influenced by this parable, this is supposed to be a way of thinking about how we encounter ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the real questions that uh, theology, it is the defining question for theology of religions is, why are there so many accounts of ultimate reality? And what, is, what are we to do in terms of making sense of the differences between these accounts? And the handy use of this allegory is to suggest that real diversity might be found in divinity, mm. that Uh, ultimate reality might actually be a multiplicity and so is capable of being encountered in a a diversity of ways. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the uses of, of uh, of this allegory. Now, Christian thinkers on the orthodox to evangelical side have really panned this allegory. I guess the most famous dismisser of this allegory is probably uh, famous Bishop uh, Leslie Newbegin, And Newbegin says, look, this, this allegory will not work to help us think about, about religious diversity because it presupposes somebody like the king who really knows that each of these people are wrong because they're standing before an elephant. There's somebody who knows, somebody who can see the whole. But when it comes to knowledge of God, nobody sees, and, uh, sees the whole, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and nobody can know anything, of course, from a traditional Christian perspective, apart from revelation. So this, this allegory just won't work. It presupposes we know too much, uh, and it's not a useful analogy. I uh, argue in the book that it is, it is in fact a useful allegory.
1: So much so that you're willing to make it the title. <laughs> yes,
2: uh, and it, it's a useful allegory so long as one takes it as a kind of hypothesis. I mean, I don't know, uh, no one does. We might be standing in front of an elephant, the other person in front of a donkey. <laughs> that is to say there might be more than one ultimate reality. There are many, many possibilities. But if you treat it as a hypothesis, it works as an aid to thought. Mm. In any case, my, my use of this allegory is not exactly the traditional one. I, I'm not actually so much interested in the classical use of the allegory as the use I make of it. So mm. I, I use it to say that three tasks need to be done together. There's the task of asking. Well, why are there so many accounts of the elephant? Uh, and that's theology of religious diversity, as I call it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the actual work of walking over to another side of the elephant. And that's comparative theology, right? Instead of just speculating, gee, why does that other fellow think it's a rope? You actually try to walk over to the other side. And of course, in, in, on my account, walking over isn't just... Uh, a matter of reading texts, it might actually be mm. uh, interreligious dialogue and actually meditating like Buddhists and Hindus do, you know, to see as they see rather than speculate. So that's comparative theology. And the third task is okay, in the light of these other two tasks, how might I re describe the elephant? And that's constructive theology. Mm-hmm. So uh, I say that. We have to do all three of those tasks together. And that's the way I, I use the allegory. So even if you think it's not a particularly great allegory, it does have the function of sort of being repurposed for, for the kind of use I'm putting to mm-hmm. it.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and that sort of connects, that last point, sort of connects to your own personal religious journey as well. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how you even got into theology, but I'm also curious about your own religious journey and your own religious participation. And I would say that in a lot of ways, the book probably is a real a manifestation of your own religious participation and journey. So can you talk a little bit about your own religious journey and how it shaped the book? Yes,
2: Uh you began before our uh, formal interview by saying that you were going to ask, you know, easier and less stringent questions than <laughs> other theologians uh, who've interviewed me, but uh, that's proving not to be the case. Sorry about that. <laughs> These are great questions. I just want and to put not... Trip up to
1: a pedestal and say yes, that he has yes. really great questions, but <laughs> that that's what I was trying to get there. But anyway, yes. sorry.
2: <laughs> no, I... Uh, I opened myself up to this question, Mason, and by writing an autobiographical preface uh, to the book, that was a decision I sweated. Uh, We, you know, uh, properly respectable academic types uh, don't usually disclose our own uh, religious experiences, let alone at the beginning Mm -hmm. (laughs) of their books. And uh, some, some colleagues, Discouraged me from doing so, you know, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But I thought that uh, it was an appropriate thing to do because the book, among other things, makes an argument, right? That if you want to know what others know, you have to learn to know as they know. Mm. And if you make that argument, if you formally argue that you can't know what Buddhists know apart from undertaking Buddhist practices, then I think you incur an obligation to speak about your own religious life. So I begin the book by saying that I really do feel that my religious experience, while being grounded in my Christian origins and home has been deepened by my encounter with hindu and buddhist texts Mm. and 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 that deepening had a kind of oh these traditions explain certain kinds of experiences i have had in a richer way than christian categories alone could have done so for example i've I've long had a particularly vivid sense of divine immanence, that God is not somewhere out there, <laughs> to quote Bed Midler's song, but nearer to me than I am to myself. I mean, it is a traditional notion mm-hmm. within certain strands of Christian tradition, but it was when I re- encountered Shankara and uh, non-dual Hindu theology, Advaita Vedanta, that I had a a clear sense, yes, this is the kind of thing that I have been experiencing, that not only is God nearer to me than I am to myself, but there might be a sense in which I just am the divine. And of course, when you start talking that way, Christians get very nervous. Uh, Hindus don't. At least not in all Hindus, non dualist Hindus are totally fine saying, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. They don't mean the body is uh, the infinite or the delimited soul is the infinite, but that the soul bottoms out into infinity mm. uh, and is not other than infinity. And, and this is a minority note in Christianity. It's only to be found in Folks like Meister Eckhart and Marguerite Perrette before him. And Marguerite may have gotten burned for saying Mm. some of these things. And uh, Eckhart conveniently died (laughs) before uh, being found guilty of of such things. But, you know, uh, there are these dimensions of the Christian tradition present in Augustine and Eckhart and Perrette in which divinity and and the soul are not two. And that's a dominant part of my life life experience. And I found that really well captured by Hindu texts. But I've also had another kind of more distinctly nameable experience, which I describe in the text, in which I had a a different sense of non-duality not a non-duality between soul and ultimate reality, but uh, a sense of non-duality between self and the world. Mm. That there is a clear me here and the world is outside me and these are really two distinct things. That sense fell away in a particular experience that I describe in the preface. and. When I got around to trying to think about the meaning of that experience, I found it best articulated in uh, certain streams of uh, Madhyamaka Buddhism, which really does say that it's possible to dissolve the illusion of a stable, persistent self that's somehow distinct well, distinct, yes, but like ontologically separate from the rest of the world. That that, mm-hmm. that sense of separateness is delusional, because there really is no stable thing anywhere to be found. So these kinds of experiences were robustly spelled out. They were just sort of normal science in other traditions, mm-hmm. whereas they're sort of esoteric moments within Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that's lovely to sort of encounter aspects of my own experience captured by other traditions.
1: One of the key insights in this book that I find really fascinating, I think it connects to all of this, is this sort of distinction between religious participation and religious belonging. You kind of brought it up really briefly, even a little bit ago. And so I think one of the things... I've learned in recent years about kind of what we call secularization in America is less of America becoming like a religious or atheistic or anything, but rather it's like multi-religious. So what I'm kind of curious about is what exactly is happening in America when it comes to religion. And especially as you kind of make these distinctions between religious participation and religious belonging.
2: That's a deep, question, and it does require other kinds of work than theologians do, but we do need um, actual empirical studies that ask people, hey, what are you up to, Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
2: rather than uh, relatively armchair sorts like like myself. I do think something like deinstitutionalization is going on, Mm. that there is considerable suspicion about religious Institutions—they uh, have complex and troubling histories that are increasingly becoming known to us as we take off blinders. That you know, uh, here in in British Columbia, where I am at, at the moment, we are just about two weeks into a discovery of two hundred and fifteen bodies of indigenous children Mm. found in unmarked graves uh, on the grounds of a residential school in Kamloops, right? So, you know, horrors like this have, I think in part, that's not the whole reason, played a considerable role in a kind of deinstitutionalization. I think also, The cultural terrain has shifted. You don't have to show up on Sunday morning uh, to cash in on cultural credentials. Mm. It was the thing to do for a a good chunk of the middle part of the century. This is where you had your community. This is where 70% of folks were on a Sunday morning. I I don't know what the actual number was. This is pretty high, though. Pretty high, I would imagine. And so it became a kind of default institutional way to build social capital. And that has fallen away. I mean, showing up on Sunday morning at church gets you nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of connections and, and uh, social capital. Although I dare say that the church might be the, one of the few standing institutions that allow us to realize that to be is to be in relation. So as we lose these kinds of ties to each other, uh, religiousness becomes much more a private, individualistic matter. And so something called spirituality becomes increasingly what people understand themselves to be doing. I'm not committed to an institution. I'm committed to certain kinds of spiritual practices, say, Mm -hmm. people. So I think that the, these kinds of factors, a kind of souring on institutions because of their fraught ethical past, a general lack of interest in generating social capital by showing up on Sunday, the fact that there is no such social capital to be had anymore and it's a purely voluntary thing. It's not anything anyone expects you to do. These kinds of things have led to a kind of, as you've rightly picked up, a deinstitutionalization and then a kind of after the deinstitutionalization, there are ranges of participation in other traditions. Whether it's a kind of naturalism that enjoys a, a sense of the spiritual beauty of nature, or nightstand Buddhism, which is you know picking up the latest books by the Dalai Lama, or Tara Brach, mm. and and that's that is something. It's it's a beginning. And then, of course, people often move beyond nightstand Buddhism to actual showing up, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the local zendo and so forth. But that begins to run run up against that anti-institutionalized sentiment, right? I mean, how how are you going to commit yourself to an institution if you're suspicious of institutions? Mm -hmm. So there's sort of ad hoc ways that people are trying to to cultivate a continued sense of spiritual longing, but uh, in ways that don't quite fit. Mm-hmm. And of course, some people do uh, go all the way to multiple religious belonging and say, well, no, actually, I do think that believing without belonging is not as easy as it looks, That <laughs> that spiritual lives do need Disciplined context for deepening and flourishing, but I don't want to be confined mm-hmm. to one particular tradition and mm-hmm. so there are folks who, as I say, do Eucharist upstairs and yoga downstairs right so there's there's this whole range of religious or spiritual uh, experience going on
1: it's funny you mentioned that that little uh, piece of it of Eucharist upstairs and and uh, yoga downstairs. Like, my my church literally has that. Like, we operate our own yoga studio that's actually quite successful in the cities. And also, we, we're a church up top. So, in our gathering space, you know, we're doing all the other, you know, sort of Christian things like baptism and Eucharist and all those sort of things. So, it's funny you mentioned that because, and that's literally how our building is structured too church up top yeah. and yoga on the bottom.
2: My question is are people thinking about, what it means to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a, in a deeply theological sense, uh, are there people who are at both places? Increasingly, I think there are. It's not just that your building hosts both communities, but that the, the communities themselves are porous, so mm-hmm. that some people are doing both. But my question is, are there people to help people Think about what it means to do both, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and I think comparative theologians are just the right people right. to totally. to help articulate the meaning of 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 those uh, of that kind of doubling. Mm-hmm. And if you don't help people think of, think and live meaningfully into that multiplicity then theology is dropping the ball, right? right? The theologian is meant to be a person who helps people articulate the meaning of their own experiences mm-hmm. among other mm-hmm. functions. And I feel like uh, theologians who remain monoreligious are simply no longer able to serve the needs of actual communities.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that multi- multiplicity, throughout this conversation, there have been these moments where I'm like, That sounds a lot like process theology. (laughs) For those who know me well enough, they know that I'm really interested in process theology. And so this might be more of like a selfish question than for a question for listeners. But how does process theology aid in this interreligious work, into this interreligious dialogue, into even this multiple religious participation?
2: It's a really intriguing question. Uh, Not an easy one to answer. There's of course, the historical observation that it is the process theologians who started thinking about religious diversity in really rigorous ways early on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John Cobb and his very rigorous encounter with the Kyoto School, out of his own uh, experience, I think, initially growing up, I believe, in Japan.
0: Mm-hmm
2: and then his 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 Christology, which is thoroughly shaped by his encounter with Buddhism. So as a matter of empirical uh, historical experience, process theologians saw the importance of this well before many other theologians uh, got around to even thinking about this topic. Process theologians also believe that they have the categorical sophistication to, to think about this. So for example, process theology doesn't just believe in God, but also believe that you, in order to think well about the world, you need to think about God, world, and creativity. Uh, and creativity is you know, the movement of the many becoming one and increased by one, that there is this dynamism in reality that leads constantly into novelty. And that creativity isn't just something that God has. So John Cobb and David Ray Griffin say, well, we have at least three ultimates. We have God, So those traditions that value a personal encounter with God, we can recognize. Mm -hmm. But we also have a way of talking about um, a dimension of reality that's transpersonal or impersonal, and that's creativity. And then, of course, because we think that the world itself is neither reducible to creativity nor God and is a genuine third, there's a room in our categorical frame for those traditions, like indigenous traditions that recognize the world itself as an ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, process theologians say, we can do it, (laughs) we can build it. We we have the technology, we have the categorical technology Mm -hmm. to recognize more than one ultimate reality. And so we have a kind of suppleness and creativity, say the process theologians, that allow us to recognize diversity in ways that traditional theologians can't, can't really get to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's at least the argument. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I, I love process is you have this inherent multiplicity that's just baked into all of reality, not just with God and creativity, but also with the world. And, um, and so, yeah, it just lends itself super well to religious diversity, and not only that, but just like true, authentic interreligious work. And this is why you see process theologians, for the most part, being some of the forefront uh, leaders when it comes to interreligious work, especially as it pertains to climate action and climate justice. One of the things that I have also been really interested in when it comes to religious pluralism and religious diversity is this sort of balance between respecting the theological claims of a particular religious tradition and taking them seriously on their own terms while not reducing them to some sort of generic truth. So sometimes you you hear this phrase of like, all religion is love or something like that. And I think in a lot of ways that can be really reductive to religions uh, and religious traditions. So can you talk a little bit about how one can kind of point out These many truths that many different religions claim and uh, are concerned about, but also like not reducing them to this sort of generic thing where you're, yeah, boiling them all down to religion or religions being just one kind of generic category of religion or something like that. And this might be a little bit more of a religious studies question than it has to do with like comparative theology, but I think it's still really important, especially as people engage religious diversity in the world.
2: Right. So, first of all, I don't think it can be reduced to a religious studies uh, question. uh, And I use the word reduced uh, deliberately because if you really think that traditions are onto something, that is to say they, they genuinely have access to understanding dimensions of human experience and ultimate reality, then you think that what traditions are saying might actually be true.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, if, if you actually hold the possibility that the religious traditions have access to and, and make access to truth possible, then you're normatively interested in those traditions. You're not just interested in a kind of descriptive study of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what comparative theologians are. Right? Comparative theologians actually believe. <laughs> that there's more to be learned by an encounter with uh, multiplicity of traditions than in studying one's own tradition alone. So I make that normative claim, and I'm actually interested in the claims of other religious traditions. Mm. Whereas a religious studies scholar often studiously abstains Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. from uh, truth questions, but it's just interested in the question of what What is religion? What is ritual? What is myth? Uh, And you can be, I mean, that's that's great. Those are great questions, Uh, but they're not a theologian's questions. Mm -hmm. A theologian begins with those questions, but doesn't stop with them. So let me be clear on that front. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, if you're interested in the truth question, then you've got a real challenge on your hand uh, because it appears that religious traditions hold, like the allegory, genuinely incompatible claims about the nature of ultimate reality. Mm. Um, So, for example, you know, a particular tradition might insist that ultimate reality is personal. God is a person. And others might say, no, ultimate reality is transpersonal, beyond personality and not reducible to, to personality. Then you have a choice at that moment, do you might say that neither of these claims are adequate to ultimate reality because all our concepts are cultural constructs mm. and no cultural construct arrives at that reality which exceeds all constructs. And so you might say there is in a sense, validity to these claims, but they can't actually be taken to refer to the real. Mm-hmm. They, they don't actually capture the real. If you make that kind of claim and say, none of my concepts refer to ultimate reality, then you have another problem on your hand. Uh, y- you can't quite give an account of why you actually have to learn uh, these various different concepts because none of them actually refer to God or ultimate reality. So you don't actually learn more about God or ultimate reality. You end up learning more about how other people conceive of ultimate reality, Mm. which is lovely. We should do that too, but that's really a kind of cultural anthropology. Hindus believe this, Buddhists believe that, Christians believe X, but none of them refer to ultimate reality. And so we're just on a kind of roadshow of learning how to be better neighbors by understanding our neighbors and their convictions better. I don't think that's good enough. Mm. Uh, And that's why I tend to back away from people like John Hick, who at least on one reading, is a kind of sharp Kantian who really doesn't think any of our ideas refer to ultimate reality. Now, some of my friends who are you know, uh, friends and followers of John Hicks say, well, that's a misreading. He, he really does think that our concepts refer to ultimate reality. Now, if our concepts do refer to ultimate reality, then you have another choice, right? What do you do with a claim that God is personal and another claim that God is impersonal. My proposal might uh, is that God might be both.
0: <laughs> mm.
2: That there might, and, and process theologians would, would say yes. Mm-hmm. There's a dimension of ultimate reality, which is personal, God. There's a dimension of ultimate reality that's transpersonal, creativity. So you can say there are multiple ultimate realities And our concepts really do pick up on different dimensions of ultimate reality. Um, And you can do that on multiple metaphysical frameworks. I don't go for process in this book. Mm -hmm. I'm deeply shaped by process, but I I, I kind of say that something like uh, multiplicity and divinity is already present through Trinitarian categories. So, the book ends with a, a kind of new formulation of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. But because I think our concepts really do refer uh, and capture different dimensions of ultimate reality, I think that when you study another tradition, you're actually learning more about ultimate reality than you can with the concepts and practices that are available to you mm. within your tradition alone. Deep. Constructed these walls and I found a
0: business Where the company line was the only
2: way to get
1: paid One of the other things that I find really important as I was reading the book is like, sort of a way forward for the person who is a multi religious participator. So, there might be a lot of listeners right now who may be practicing a number of different religious practices from a number of different religious traditions. And I know that there sometimes can be this tendency, especially among white people, to practice a religious practice that ends up sort of spiritually colonizing that practice because you're stripping it from its context, you're stripping it from its history, and you're even maybe to a certain degree stripping it from its own people. So Can you talk a little bit about a way forward that you think both respects religious practices in their own context and everything, but still allows for this multi-religious belonging that doesn't end up spiritually colonizing particular practices?
2: Yeah, Uh, I think the disability community's mantra, uh, nothing about me without me, is an incredibly helpful mantra to keep in mind. Mm. What would it mean if I made no claims about Buddhists apart from actually checking those claims out by having, first of all, learned with Buddhists and then by being in continued conversation with Buddhists? It's no longer a difficult thing to do to uh, engage in serious studies of other traditions with other traditions, because every major American city has fairly learned you know Zen masters if you want to if you want to study Zen you can you can go and check out your work with them uh, so my first claim is you 're going to be running risks if you're making claims about the other but You've stopped being an active relationship and conversation with the other. So my my commitment and 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 uh, and calling and urging to to others who want to do interreligious work is to to be in relation. That is, you know, ninety percent of of uh, how you avoid the the. And and then of course there are these asymmetries in power. You have to understand. And, and account for them and negotiate very carefully with even the question of what it means to learn, right? Uh, which language does this learning happen in? So, you know, I, I put in my time, learned my Sanskrit and did enough of that work. I'm not a philologist like some of my teachers are, but I learned enough to be able to at least know which the original, terms are, and how to use them carefully and skillfully and accurately, and how they're differently used in different strands of the tradition. So you've got to put in that kind of work before you dare claim to represent or say a word about, about the other. So mm-hmm. loving
1: labor and loving
2: conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. It's all a relation. <laughs> yes, absolutely. As much as I want to avoid you know reducing and bullying everything down, I, I would say you know there's so much of that in in your book that the relationality is just so key to it all. Second to last question, because the sort of tagline of my podcast is exploring inspiring and liberating theologies, can you talk a little bit about how circling the elephant is inspiring and liberating theological work?
2: Oh, certainly. Uh, to begin with. If I'm speaking, you know, if if I remain purely provincial in my knowledge of uh, only my own tradition, I'm running enormous spiritual and religious risks. Right? Um, Even in my first book, I said, you know, if if the basic command Uh against bearing false witness regarding your neighbor is to be exercised, you have to know your neighbor. You're almost certainly bound to bear false witness if you know nothing about your neighbor. And, and it's irresponsible now. And increasingly, I, I you know make the point that others have also made that uh, religious diversity is not any longer a matter of how the church relates to those outside the church. Because if they're doing yoga downstairs, <laughs> it's an in-the-church uh, matter. I mean, uh, I routinely say also that you know people from uh, other religious traditions are no longer on the other side of the the world, but on the other side of the bed. Mm. So it's often a matter of having meaningful relationships with our partners and our spouses and our children. You know, if if your Jewish spouse is coming with you to the church and your priest is going on about the Pharisees. In, in diminishing ways, it, it's going to occur to the Jewish spouse pretty quickly that something is awry here, because the Pharisees are, of course, the forerunners of uh, contemporary rabbis. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's interreligious work uh, happening for the good or for the ill in the church hour. Mm-hmm. So if you do don't want to engage in wounding behavior that caricatures other traditions, you. You have to do interfaith work now. it's no longer a, an option that you can oh yeah, you know some people do Christian theology and then some other people do interfaith dialogue
0: mm-hmm.
2: compared to theology mm-hmm. that's just that di- that dichotomy is no longer sustainable in in a pluralistic world
0: mm-hmm.
2: now to take another example, it's impossible to miss that Twentieth and 21st century Christian theologies continue largely to labor under the burden of time. We're, we're a time-obsessed tradition, in part because you know uh, the eschatological thrust of Christian imagination places us in a kind of posture of longing for the coming kingdom. But what about place? Right as as a, a, as an important feature of theology. Now, thankfully, some Christian theologians are waking up to the massive forgetfulness of place and how that has distorted our theology in disastrous and devastating ecological ways. Uh, Willie James Jennings writing on place. Mm-hmm is you know an example. Uh, but of course, the folks who really can teach us a very great deal about place uh, and the meaning of place are folks like Vine Deloria and uh, indigenous theologians from whom we have not yet begun to learn. Uh, so if you have anything like a, a remotely liberationist hope that we might do justice to the cry of the earth, uh, as well as the cry of the poor, to use Leonardo uh, Boff's language, in our time that's got to be an interreligious project
0: mm-hmm.
2: because mm-hmm. other traditions have thought long and hard about place in ways that Christian theology remains just re- remarkably flat-footed about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, I think it's it, it is a a deeply liberationist project to to learn from other imaginations and other wisdoms. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, as I think through liberationist theologies and the issues that they talk about around economics, gender, race, class, so on and so forth, sexuality, uh, not to mention climate change, I do think that one of the core pieces to all of that that often gets missed, especially in those kind of conversations, is religious diversity and interfaith dialogue because of the way that interreligious work will just become such it's, it's it's already paramount in our world but will only become increasingly paramount as more and more people are in conversation together in ways that we've never seen before because of the rise of you know international kind of communications like internet and whatnot so that that kind of work i think is just going to be so incredibly important as we conceive of all sorts of different kind of liberationist theologies um You know, they've done really well when it comes to class and race and gender and so on and so forth. One of the other things that I think is so important moving forward is that interreligious work.
2: Yeah. and, And for me, this is fundamentally a post colonial claim, too. Who can you learn from? Who is an object of study and who is left remaining forever an object of study by the means of anthropology, say, or sociology? You know, I can study them. But those are not folks I can learn from, Mm. right? So if their ideas remain a matter of anthropological interest, they remain merely an object for my interrogation and not a conversation partner, an equal whom might transform Mm me. So if you say that you are a a liberationist, but you have no serious interest in other people's ideas, holy cow, what the heck is that? Uh, You know, it's a fundamental betrayal of anything like, uh, I mean, it's a Hegelian kind of move, right? I mean, those people's ideas, they were interesting, but they are no longer where history is at. You know, history has moved beyond the primitive ideas of those others. Mm. Well, actually, the most interesting stuff in anthropology uh, now has completely abandoned that posture. There, there's a genuine desire to learn from the actual claims of other religious traditions. You would think that theology would catch up with that too, mm. but you know mm. we we seem to be a bit behind That's <laughs> true.
1: <laughs> Last question, John. How can listeners get connected to you in your work?
2: Well, i you know I'm easily accessible in uh, at Union theological Seminary and for various reasons, there's just a ton of stuff by me on YouTube. Uh, I don't have a podcast or a, a a regular sort of thing that I do, like a, a blog, but there are tons of uh, interviews and, and videos and such uh, available. And uh, And I'm also happy to field uh, emails. So. Great.
1: Also, you're a great Twitter follow, too.
2: Ah, yes, yes. Not as good as you. I, I'm still trying to learn Menenga's secrets of, of of tweeting.
1: Well, you're getting there. I saw, you know, there, you every now and then will have a tweet that uh, people will not be so keen of. And, you know. You're getting there, then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about Circling the Elephant. Again, it was one of my favorite reads uh, over this last semester, and I-, I think again, this is one of the most prevailing questions for us to consider, especially for those who are interested in liberationist type of theologies. Uh, I think this is such an important piece of work, and so thank you so much for talking a little bit more about not only the book, but also kind of the story behind the book uh, for your own personal self. So thank you so much.
2: Sure, and thank you for having me on.
1: If you'd like to connect with John and Forrest Clay and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
0: church, what have we done? No, church.